This is Space Time, Series 21, Episode 95, for broadcast on the 30th of November, 2018. Coming up on Space Time, the ticking time bomb in our stellar backyard, a new study of the rare blue asteroid Phaethon, and clear air for opportunity. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered a unique triple star system containing a pair of massive Wolf Rayet stars which are about to explode as supernovae and could end up producing one of the most powerful explosions since the Big Bang, a massive gamma ray burst. Lasting anywhere between a few thousandths of a second in a few hours, gamma ray bursts can release as much energy as the sun will produce over its entire lifetime. Long-duration gamma-ray bursts, those which last longer than two seconds, are believed to be caused by the supernova explosions of rapidly rotating wolf Rayet stars. This cosmic ticking time bomb was discovered, well, virtually in our stellar backyard, just 8,000 light-years away, in the southern hemisphere constellation of Norma, nestled just beneath Scorpio's tail. The two hot, luminous primary stars in the group orbit each other every few hundred years or so. This uniquely beautiful star system has created an elegant spiral dust cloud generated by the high rate of spin by one of the stars. Wolf Rayet stars represent the final phase in the evolution of the most massive stars in the universe, known as spectral type O blue stars. It's a phase they enter just before undergoing a core collapse supernova. During this phase, these massive stars blast out powerful winds of hot gas. When Wolf Rayet stars pair up in binary systems, the collision between the winds of the two stars can see gigantic dust clouds, which take on elegant spiral pinwheel patterns as the stars orbit each other. The study's lead author, Joseph Cullingham from Astron, the Netherlands Institute of Radio Astronomy, discovered the new bright stars adorned with a beautiful rare pinwheel. The system, comprising a nest of massive stars surrounded by the pinwheel of dust, is officially known as 2XMM J160050.7-514245. However, the authors have nicknamed the star system Apep, after the serpent deity of chaos from ancient Egyptian mythology, Apep being the mortal enemy of the sun god Ra. The study's co-author, Peter Tuttle from the University of Sydney, says the name seemed appropriate after the sinuous dust plume looks like a coiled serpent doing battle with the central star. However, when the authors set out to understand the shape of the dust cloud, they discovered something strange. Using the Very Large Telescope in Chile and the Anglo-Australian Telescope in far western New South Wales, they measured the speeds of the spewed-out gas, finding it to be travelling an amazing 12 million kilometres per hour. Now, one would expect dust seeded from this gas to have a similar speed. But when the authors imaged the dust cloud again a year later, the shape had changed, indicating a much lower expansion speed. During that second observation, the dust appeared to be only moving at around 2 million kilometres per hour, almost an order of magnitude slower. The only way to get such a system to work like this is if the Wolf Rayet stars are spewing out gas at a range of different speeds. From the poles, a pep is emitting hot, fast gas but the winds from its equator are much slower and denser. These anisotropic wind speeds are known to be a product of fast-rotating stars. One of the stars is rotating so fast, it's close to ripping itself apart. 
The stellar winds have thus created the elaborate plumes surrounding this triple star system, the binary star system at the centre and a companion single star all bound together by gravity. The binary is responsible for sculpting the serpentine swirls around Apep, which formed in the wake of the colliding stellar winds from the two Wolf Rayet stars. In most supernova models, critical rotation is needed for a star's fiery death to be accompanied by the most energetic explosions in the universe, long-duration gamma-ray bursts. And here's where it gets interesting. Gamma-ray bursts have only ever been observed in other galaxies, usually at remote distances. Although astronomers have speculated there may be evidence of past events in our own galaxy encoded in Earth's fossil record. A PEP appears not to be aimed directly at Earth, and that's good news because a strike by a gamma-ray burst at this proximity would strip the Earth's atmospheric ozone, drastically increasing our exposure to ultraviolet radiation from the Sun. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Dr Fred Watson. A binary star collision slash supernova, which seems to be getting a lot of attention in the media at the moment. Indeed. The good news is this thing's 8,000 light-years away. <laughs> well, that's handy. It is handy. That means it's uh, quite a, a distant, a long way away uh, in our galaxy. It is in the constellation Norma. Norma is the square. It's a Southern Hemisphere constellation, so that means, of course, it can be observed from the Southern Hemisphere. But what it is, is a pair of stars which are relatively unusual. They're called Wolf Rayet stars. And these are stars that, you know, they've been known for a hundred years probably, as being objects that are unusual. They've got an unusual spectrum. They are now identified as being very massive stars, which are kind of at the end of their lives and therefore a supernova risk. And they probably, in the end, when they go off pop, they collapse and you get a neutron star, which is a star that's the size of a city but has the mass of the sun in it. Yeah, I can't uh, get my head around that one either. We know they exist and they're fairly common, actually. Or it could be a black hole, depending on how big the wolf Ray phase of uh, stellar evolution is. But what we've got here is, and this is an Australian discovery, it's fantastic news. It utilises um, our new strategic partnership with the European Southern Observatory, because the telescopes of the very large telescope in Chile, belonging to the European Southern Observatory, they've been used for these observations. So what's unusual about this is that there are two Wolf Ray stars which are in orbit around each other. So it's a kind of binary Wolf Ray. Mm. That's, I think, a bit of a rarity. It's probable that many Wolf Ray stars are in a binary system, you know, part of a partnership of two stars orbiting one another, because a large percentage of stars are in binaries. In that regard, our sun's quite unusual because it's a single, it's just a single star. But normally when you've got a wolf ray binary, only one of the stars is a wolf ray and there's something else with it. Uh, although the problem is the wolf ray itself is so bright, it's probably hard to see the other one. And so you might not, you know, you might not observe it. Well, I think that was the initial problem. They didn't realise what they had here. And and yes, uh, I, I think I read one article that suggested this this should have actually been discovered a long time ago, but um, it was just really hard to see. So that's right. So uh, they had to basically use uh, infrared observing to penetrate the dust because this thing's surrounded by a cloud of dust. They're very dusty objects, are Wolf Ray stars. There's a lot of complexity in the details of how this thing works and what it's actually doing. I might just tell you that it's been informally named APEP because that's an Egyptian. Egyptian serpent deity mm -hmm. and basically it's uh, 
fairly warlike Egyptian serpent deity, so it's got fairly grim overtones. But being called that because there is a serpent-like trail of dust and indeed gas as well coming from this thing. Apep is actually emitting almost like a Catherine wheel of dust as it rotates. And the speeds at which this wind of dust is being emitted from the star is they're very high. They're in the region of three or four hundred kilometers per second. These are winds that are, you know, the ones you don't want to get caught out in. No. I think there is thought to be a third component of this system as well. I can't actually remember exactly the details of which bits are which, but I think it is probably a triple star system rather than just a binary. Oh, right. Density increases as you look in more and more detail. And rather than try and describe it, because this is a very visual story, especially with these serpent-like winds of dust that are blowing from this this thing, it's not that easy to describe. But the, the issue is these things are thought to be the precursors of something called gamma ray bursts. And gamma ray bursts were a puzzle for a long time. Once again, they're a bit like fast radio. Fast radio bursts. Fast radio is. But, but they are not in the radio spectrum. They're in the gamma ray region of the spectrum. That's very high energy. It's shorter wavelength than X-rays. They were discovered actually back in the 1970s by satellites which were put into orbit, not for astronomy, but to monitor atmospheric nuclear tests. They were part of the test ban treaty. These satellites were put into orbit to keep an eye on the whole world because mm. uh, you can detect from the gamma rays if a nuclear explosion goes off. So that's what these things were put into orbit for. In fact, they they didn't find any coming from the ground, but they found lots coming from the sky, these very short-lived bursts of gamma radiation, just a few seconds. They've now been followed up over a period of a long time. We now know a lot more about gamma ray bursts than we did before. And one of the possible origins of these things is systems very like the APEP system or APEP system that we're talking about, this um, pair of Wolf Rayet stars and its third companion. Perhaps the good news in this story is that... Gamma ray bursts are thought to be brilliantly bright. I mean, they outshine the, almost the whole universe when you see them, but in gamma rays, that is. Yeah. But it's thought that that's because we are along the line of sight of a jet of radiation or, a, or a, what we call a collimated beam of radiation, radiation that's going in one particular direction. And so it looks very, very bright because you're right in the beam. It's like a torch beam. But in fact, in other directions, the energy released is much less. And the good news about this story is that the from the studies that have been done, the pole of these stars, which is or the pole of, you know, the, the north and south pole of either one of them, I think, is not pointing in our direction. And so if there is a gamma ray burst and it's the pole from which this is emitted, and that's the current thinking from the theoretical models, which absolutely amaze me, the, the way these theoretical astronomers manage to pick out the details of what's happening from the basic physics. So the emission of gamma rays would almost certainly not be in our direction. What, so would, what does, would happen if we were to sustain a direct hit from a gamma ray I burst? Think, I think it would be pretty, pretty grim for, well, not just humankind, but all life on Earth, because gamma rays are of course ionizing radiation it's very dangerous radiation and if you've got something only 8000 light years away that's beaming gamma rays at you i think you're in big trouble and it doesn't do you much good being on the other side of the earth because uh, <laughs> you know you get it basically strips off the atmosphere that's what happens mm-hmm. it, 
lose the atmosphere for a start, and then it goes downhill from there. But it's going to miss us anyway, so that's all right. Well, that's the good news, because the ones that we see, you know, the ones that that are detected by satellites, and there, there are several satellites that are specifically to detect gamma ray bursts rather than looking for nuclear explosions and things. The ones that have been detected are at distances measured in billions of light years, and yet they are still brilliant in the gamma ray spectrum. So imagine that translated into 8,000 light years away, and you get an idea of what yeah. kind of ferocity there might be. That's Dr. Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister program, Space Nuts. A new study of the rock comet Phaethon has found that it may be even more enigmatic than previously thought. The findings, presented at the 50th Annual Meeting of the American Astronomical Society's Division of Planetary Sciences in Knoxville, Tennessee, suggest that 3200 Phaethon has an unusually blue spectra. The findings, by Teddy Carita from the University of Arizona, are based on studies of sunlight reflected off Phaethon, which is already known to be blue in colour. Blue asteroids, which reflect more light in the blue part of the electromagnetic spectrum, make up only a fraction of all known asteroids. The majority of asteroids are either dull grey or red in colour, depending on the type of material on their surface. Phaethon sets itself apart for two reasons. Firstly, it appears to be one of the bluest of similarly coloured asteroids or comets in the solar system. And secondly, its orbit takes it so close to the Sun that its surface heats up to about 800 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt aluminum. Astronomers have been intrigued by Phaethon for years because of its highly elongated comet-like orbit through the solar system and the fact that it leaves a trail of debris in its wake which generates the annual Geminids meteor shower in early to mid-December. Also, Phaethon always appears as a dot in the sky like thousands of other asteroids, lacking the fuzzy coma and signature tails associated with comets. Meteor showers occur when Earth passes through the trail of dust and debris left behind by a comet's orbit. When they occur and where they appear to originate from depends on how the comet's orbit is oriented with respect to the Earth. Phaethon's thought to be the parent body of the Geminids meteor shower because its orbit's very similar to the orbit of the Geminids meteors. Until Phaethon was discovered in 1983, scientists linked all meteor showers to active comets, not asteroids. At that time, the assumption was that Phaethon was probably a dead, burnt-out comet. Problem is, comets, like most asteroids, are typically red in colour, not blue. So even though Phaethon's highly eccentric orbit should scream dead comet, the authors found it hard to determine whether Phaethon was in fact more like an asteroid or more like a dead comet. Phaethon also releases tiny dust trails as it gets close to the sun in a process that's thought to be similar to a dry riverbed cracking in the afternoon heat. This kind of activity has only been seen on two objects in the solar system, Phaethon and one other similar object, 2005 UD, that also appears to blur the line between comets and asteroids. The authors obtained new insights about Phaethon by analysing data from NASA's Infrared Telescope Facility on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, as well as a telescope run by the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory on Mount Hopkins in Arizona. They think Phaethon may be related to or have broken off from a larger body called 2 Phalus, a large blue asteroid further out in the solar system. However, they found Phaethon to be darker than previously observed and only about half as reflective as Phalus. That makes it difficult to say if or even how Phaethon and Phalus are related. The team also observed that Phaethon's blue colour is the same on all parts of its surface, which indicates that it's been cooked fairly evenly by the Sun in recent years. 
The authors are now conducting observations on 2005 UD. That's that other small blue asteroid astronomers think could be linked to Phaethon. They want to see if it shares the same rare properties. The Geminids peak each year on the night of December the 13th and 14th, locally at around 2am, but they can be seen for several days both prior and after that date. The Geminids are also one of the most active meteor showers, with up to 120 meteors an hour under good sky sight conditions. Mind you, humans haven't been seeing the Geminids meteor shower for very long. They were first spotted in the skies above Mississippi in 1862. Although there is some literature dating back to 1077 in China, which could be describing them as well. The Geminids are one of only two very active meteor showers associated with an object that's not an active comet. The other being the Quadrantids meteor shower, which peaks each year around January the 3rd and is related to the asteroid, again probably dead comet, 2003 EH1. The radiant of the Geminids, that is the place in the sky where the meteors seem to come from, is quite close to the star Castor, one of the brightest stars in the constellation Gemini. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. New readings of the Martian atmosphere show that the global dust storm which enveloped the red planet is now completely gone. And the air around the location of NASA's Mars Opportunity rover is now back to normal levels of clarity. The massive dust storm blanketed the red planet in June, July and August. Mission managers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California say atmospheric opacity or tau over the rover site has now dropped to a storm-free level of 0.8. Opportunity's last communications with Earth was back on June the 10th as the then thickening dust clouds began blocking out sunlight from reaching the rover's solar panels needed to charge its batteries. Since going silent, more than 253 recovery commands have been sent by NASA's Deep Space Network to try and initiate a response from the golf cart-sized six-wheel rover. Sadly, however, Opportunity has remained silent. Mission managers think the rover's likely experienced a low-power fault, a mission clock fault, and an up-lost timer fault. Once the rover gets enough charge back in its batteries, most of those issues should rectify themselves, or at least allow contact to be re-established with Earth. The team at JPL has been listening for signals from the rover over a broad range of times, frequencies and polarizations, and they've been commanding what are called sweeps and beeps throughout the daily deep space network pass, with both right-hand and left-hand circular polarization, in order to address a possible complexity with certain conditions within the mission clock fault. Now, as we mentioned last week, the current thinking is that dust from the storms has settled on the rover's solar panels, preventing them from collecting sunlight. And NASA's hoping that winds will eventually increase at Opportunity's location over the next few months, and these winds will be strong enough to blow the dust off the solar panels. For now, mission managers continue asking Opportunity to phone home, a situation which will be reassessed in January. Opportunity was launched from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida three weeks after its twin rover Spirit on July 7, 2003. Oppie, as it's affectionately known, landed on the Meridiani Planum near the Martian Equator six months later on January the 25th, 2004. Spirit had touched down three weeks earlier on the other side of the planet in Gusev Crater. Both rovers were only designed to operate for 90 days in the harsh, freeze-dried Martian desert conditions. Amazingly, they'd both kept operating for many years. Spirit remained operating for 2,269 days until finally getting bogged in a sand dune with its solar panels pointing away from the sun. 
Its final message was sent to Earth on the 22nd of March 2010, more than six years after landing. We know opportunities continued operating far longer, covering at least 5,111 days on the Martian surface, examining rocks and minerals, and travelling more than 45 kilometres to its current location in a valley leading off the rim of Endeavour Crater. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that children with intellectual disabilities are more likely than their peers to live in areas with high air pollution. The findings, reported in the Journal of Intellectual Disability Research, looked at data from around 18,000 children born in the UK between the year 2000 and 2002. They found that kids with intellectual disabilities were 33% more likely to live in areas with high levels of diesel particulate matter, 30% more likely to live in areas with high levels of nitrogen dioxide, 30% more likely to live in areas with high levels of carbon monoxide, and 17% more likely to live in areas with high levels of sulfur dioxide. The findings follow a recent study reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which found that exposure to traffic pollution was linked to an increased risk of autism in a Canadian area with relatively low air pollution. Although the cause of autism remains unknown, the Canadian researchers found that exposure during pregnancy to environmental nitric oxide, which they used as a proxy for traffic air pollution, was associated with a greater risk of autism in children. A new study has found that people suffering depression have an increased risk of atrial fibrillation. But the findings reported in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology also found that medication was not responsible for the high frequency of atrial fibrillation in depressed people. AFib is the most common heart rhythmic disorder, or arrhythmia, causing some 20-30% to of all strokes and dramatically increases the risk of dying prematurely. One in four middle-aged adults in Europe and the United States will develop atrial fibrillation. Researchers found that compared with the general population, patients taking antidepressants had a 3.18-fold higher risk of atrial fibrillation during the first month of treatment. Interestingly, researchers found the risk of AFib was even higher in the month before starting antidepressants, some 7.65-fold. Now, all this suggests that antidepressant medication itself is not associated with the development of atrial fibrillation. However, it also shows a real link between the heart and the brain. The Health Department is warning Australian households to run their water taps or faucets at least 30 seconds every morning to avoid exposure to lead. The warning was actually issued back in July, but for some reason it's only now been picked up by the Australian media. While lead is rarely used in Australian water pipes, it is widely used in a range of plumbing products, including brass fittings. Unlike many metals, lead is not beneficial to humans, and it's been shown quite clearly to seriously impair brain development in children. And it's for this reason health department officials are saying people should take every opportunity to limit their exposure to lead. An analysis of Neanderthal DNA found in modern humans from Europe and East Asia suggests amorous encounters between the two species occurred not just through single episodes of interbreeding, but often over longer periods of time. Researchers were intrigued by the fact that East Asians have 12 to 20% more Neanderthal DNA than Europeans and use computer models to try and analyse the differences in DNA. They showed that Homo sapiens engaged in a spot of, shall we say, Neanderthal nookie many times during periods of interbreeding. 
The findings are reported in the journal Nature Ecology and Evolution. The scientific method involves observation, hypothesis, experimentation, analysis and conclusion. Science is all about critical thinking. It's a search for the truth. Don't just take someone's word for it. Test the claim. See if it's factual and stands up, or if it's nothing more than a great steaming pile of woo. After all, that's what skepticism is all about, a search for the truth. And remember, scientific facts don't care if you like them or not. In a move which has shocked the medical and scientific communities, the World Health Organization is about to endorse the pseudoscience of traditional Chinese medicine, stuff which, for the most part, doesn't really work and is not based on any scientific evidence. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics has the details. The World Health Organization is responsible for putting out something called the ICD, which is the International Classification of Diseases. This has been something that's been going since the late 1800s, and the World Health Organization took it up pretty soon after it was founded, so in 1948. It goes through various editions and changes. The latest was actually ICD, as it's called, number 10, which was only it came out in 1990, so a long time ago. So they're working on producing ICD-11. The trouble is this uh, uh, directory, this classification is for basically for medical practitioners to put down the way people are being treated and what can be done for particular conditions, etc. It's been pretty straightforward. I mean, there are always discussions about what's on there, but now it looks like they're including a lot of traditional Chinese medicine stuff, which is by and large unsupported. And so therefore, we're getting a similar thing to what's happening with the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia. They're endorsing a lot of stuff, which is basically pseudoscience and pseudomedicine with no sort of support of them at all. And the, the, the fact that the WHO is doing this is a pretty major concern because they're a very influential organisation, obviously. Why would they be doing this? I mean, l l let's take a step back firstly. Not all Chinese medicine is, of course, pseudoscience. Some of it becomes real science once it's been tested and proven to work, after all. That's how aspirin That's came right. about from the willow tree. So, That's uh, right. Uh, you know, some of this stuff ends up working, but that stuff is, is no longer considered Chinese medicine. It's considered medicine, period. This traditional Chinese medicine we're talking about, a lot of it is just things which don't have any scientific backing. They don't have any scientific backing. They often don't have real evidence that they work either. But obviously there's this long tradition, which is not always as long as people uh, might think. It was actually promoted a lot by Chairman Mao in the 60s, etc., because their medical system was not crash hot in China. So they said, well, let's use the traditional stuff, even though Chairman Mao didn't. He didn't believe it, but he uh, it was promoted at that time in China. It obviously has a big influence. It's a big cultural thing within Chinese communities around the world. Japanese, Koreans also do it, so it's a, a, a very much an East Asian sort of thing, but spreading around the world. There's And you're seeing this influence in creeping into WHO. Now, it has been suggested that the, the credit for this has been the influence of the Director General of WHO, who tends to lean that way. Now, how much influence she actually had on pushing WHO into that direction, I don't know. Um, it's probably very hard to say, but there are indications that they are looking more and more in this area. And of course, one of the problems with traditional Chinese medicine is that it's appalling for the animals and things it uses. You know, it's, it's the cause of rhino horn being, you know, rhinos being killed and almost wiped out in some places. And tigers of, as well. Uh, bear bile. Mm. So they have bears in small cages and they're just they're tapping into their bile. All sorts of appalling uses of animals, which are endangered animals in many cases. And so therefore, there's double areas of concern. One is that it doesn't necessarily work and yet it's very influential. And the second, it has this major impact on endangered animals. And once you get the WHO supporting it, even indirectly just by listing it in a directories, it then becomes sort of accepted that, that it works. And there's no indication that a lot of these things, most of it, 
doesn't work. This then goes a long way to discrediting the World Health Organization. Yeah, how can, yeah. How can it, you it, trust it, them? Well, it's very, very concerning. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 